0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged wastrel playing adventure gamebooks out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode I have the particular pleasure of playing through Crypt of the Sorcerer, the 1987 fighting fantasy book by Ian Livingstone, with illustrations by John Sibick, cover art by Les Edwards, and a colour map by Leo Harris. But before we get into the meat of the episode, a quick apology for the lateness of this one. I've been unwell recently, and that's had a massive knock-on effect for all the various projects I have on the go. I'm hoping this episode will be out before the end of the month, but if it tips over into August, there will be a second regular episode in August to keep the overall output on track. I'm still not fully recovered so my apologies if the energy levels of this episode are a little lower than usual I'm still not feeling great. This has also had an impact on the game book I'm writing. If you're a patron you can go over to patreon.com hjdoom to see how I'm addressing it. But the headline is I will still be releasing a game book before the end of summer. It'll just be on a smaller scale and there's going to be another game book hopefully later in the year or early next year. So there will still be game books to be had. Lastly, there's some fairly major building work going on on the other side of my road. If you hear any noise in the background, that's likely the source. I don't have the energy to record in the evenings at the moment, so I will do my best to clean up the audio, but there's only so much you can do. I do hope it isn't too distracting. With the housekeeping out of the way, let's look at Crypt of the Sorcerer. I have to say I am delighted to be following a Herbie Brennan mass of insane design decisions with the safest pair of hands in fighting fantasy, Ian Livingstone. The quality of his books definitely varies, but I always know that the writing will be strong, the book will functionally work, and he won't mess with the systems just for the sake of messing with the systems. I expect that I'll be getting something in the classic fantasy adventure line, because that's what he generally does, and he does it really well. But this is one I never played as a child, so I'm coming in completely fresh, which is a delight. The front cover is pleasantly strange, I would say. There is a horrible desiccated zombie-looking thing with unpleasantly thin arms, wearing a red robe and conjuring a small fire with its outstretched hand looks very much like the sorcerer of the title i think that's pretty cool but my favorite bit is that it's standing in front of a sarcophagus from which a mixture of heads and skulls are exploding out in all directions like some kind of necrotic roman candle it's completely nuts and i really hope it reflects something of the final confrontation with the titular Sorcerer. So let's generate a character and get this thing started. We are totally back to basics with this one. We have skill, stamina and luck to generate and nothing else. We don't even start with any provisions. So I've generated my traditional above average character, who I have called Mandible Turbot Hacker, because I think that sounds like a nicely heroic name. They have a skill of 11, a stamina of 22, and a luck of 10. And that is such a contrast with Fire Asterix Wolf that I just cannot even grasp it. Uh, This is the shortest character generation bit I think we've had for some considerable time, but we're done. So let's dive right into Crypt of the Sorcerer. Chalice is a small town, lying on the banks of the Silver River at the base of the Moonstone Hills. Pretty sure we've been there before. It has grown from being merely a cluster of cabins and huts into its present size, mainly because it became an important trading centre for prospectors seeking gold in the hills. It was the first safe haven for merchants who had travelled west from the flatlands on their way to Silverton. In Chalice, they could rest and do business without fear of attack. There are plenty of inns and places of entertainment, and it used to be among the most boisterous towns in all of Alansia. I have to say, uh, the town where I live gets pretty boisterous on a Friday or Saturday night. Also, sometimes a little bit stabby. But now, as you look out of the window of your upstairs bedroom at the Lion Inn, there is no sign of merriment. For three weeks, the sky has been dark and menacing. People recently arriving in Chalice from the East have told of pestilence, plague, disease and famine moving ever closer to the West. Pestilence, plague, disease. Those are functionally synonyms. Only yesterday, a story spread like wildfire through the town that someone had discovered where the source of the evil lay. An elf flying south on his giant eagle over the southern edge of Moonstone Hills, noticed a deep fissure in the ground, out of which rose a putrid-smelling vapour. All around the fissure, the grass was blackened and the trees were stunted and leafless. Sounds like Daventry. As he flew over the fissure, the elf said he saw a scorched and withered hand rise out of the gap, its claw-like index finger pointing up at the eagle. An energy bolt shot up from the tip of the finger, and burned a hole straight through the poor creature. It crashed to the ground, but the elf escaped with his life, and walked to the chalice to tell the tale. Poor eagle. I like an eagle. You are a friend of the old wizard Yaz Tromo. Hey! Nice to see him back again. We really are filling in Alansia as a place, and seeing some nice, repeated characters cropping up. You are a friend of the old wizard Yastromo who lives on the southern edge of Darkwood Forest. And you decide to visit him and to relate the elf's tale. In the now familiar dusky light of day, you spur your horse northwards to Yastromo's tower. And before nightfall you reach the overgrown path that leads to it. You dismount quickly, stride up to the huge oak door and ring the brass bell that hangs on the stone archway. There is no reply. Suddenly, you are tapped on the shoulder. "'You whirl around, reaching for your sword. "'There'll be no need of that,' grunts the old man who stands before you, "'shaking his finger in admonishment. "'What are you doing here, anyway, disturbing my peace and quiet? "'I haven't laid eyes on you for over a year, "'and now you just turn up unannounced, "'walk straight through my herb garden "'and ring my bell long enough to wake the dead. "'Well, what do you want?' I see Yastromo hasn't changed a bit. You smile to yourself while you watch the grumpy old wizard displaying his usual hospitality. And what's so funny? He asks. I've no idea whether I'm doing anything like the same voice for Yastromo as I did last time. Um, but I think it's in the right ballpark. Your expression immediately changes and Yastromo frowns when he sees the concerned look on your face. I think we should go upstairs so that you can tell me what is troubling you. I presume something is troubling you, and I am sure you wouldn't visit me for any other reason. I can guess that it has something to do with this infernal dark sky. When you have finished telling Yaz Tromo the elf's tale, he remains sitting silently in his old oak chair, his face as sombre as the grave. At last... He speaks, sighing with every word. I don't think he means that, because that would mean... Then my worst fears are realised. Yeah, I don't think he means that, literally. The necromancer has risen. Those fools, their greed might now bring an end to life in Alansia, unless, completely puzzled by Yastromo's mutterings, you ask him to explain. As if, describing a horrible nightmare, Yastromo recounts the legend of the evil necromancer Razark, who threatened Alansia one hundred years ago. Although he first learned his skills as an apprentice to a lawful wizard, Razark was attracted early on in life by the dark power of evil. He realised that he could become a great sorcerer who would one day be able to command everyone to obey him. He had no desire or intention to use his magic to help Alansia. He wanted the kingdom to be brought to his knees. Surprised he didn't run in the current Conservative Party leadership contest, to be brutally honest. He travelled to a remote part of the eastern Alansia, and there he practised his arcane arts. He quickly progressed through the levels of dark magic from a lowly apprentice to wizard and then sorcerer, so that at last his powers were so great he became a necromancer, having spent the last 40 years in solitude. Kind of like, I guess, a sort of dark reflection of Yaztromo. Rizark then sent messages to all the nobles of Alansia, demanding that they acknowledge him as his ruler. But first they ignored him, for none had heard of him. Rizark took umbrage, and in retaliation brought plague and pestilence to the nobles' provinces, giving them until the next full moon to recognise his leadership. Many warriors offered to try and slay Rizark, and many died in the attempt. But one brave man by the name of Cull succeeded and saved Alansia. Oh, just recently reread Robert E. Howard's uh, Cull of Atlantis stories. There's a thing I can heartily recommend doing, a bit like Conan. Well, I guess a proto Conan, but with a sort of more magical, dreamlike quality to them. They are well worth a read if you can find them. Cull owned a sword which he had found in the Moonstone Hills, gripped by a skeletal hand rising from a mist-covered lake, across which he was sailing a raft. Cole was mesmerised by the sword's magnificent beauty. He immediately wanted it for his own and reached out for it. The skeleton made no attempt to prevent him, and simply slipped down into the muddy depths of the lake as soon as it released the sword. Kind of like a really dark sequel to King Arthur finding Excalibur. That's the thing I love about this sort of fantasy it's taking these recognisable tropes and just doing them in a way that's a bit grimier, a bit grittier and a bit more unpleasant. Cole was so overwhelmed with the sword that nothing else mattered to him. He steered his raft to the shore and began testing his new weapon. He discovered that nothing could dull its edge and that he could cut through plate mail with ease. He did not realise that the sword had once belonged to Rizark and was the only weapon in the whole world with the power to slay him. Razark, in order to become a necromancer, had to relinquish all his weapons. But there was no power strong enough to destroy his cursed sword. To try and rid himself of the sword, Razark threw it into a lake, but it rose to the surface in the grip of the skeleton. For years, the skeleton clutched the sword until Cole caught sight of it and took it for himself. And so, a twist of fate took the invincible Cole to Razark and Razark was slain at the hands of Cole by the sword that had once been his own. But the moment Razark was slain, Cole's flesh fell from his bones and lay in a pile of dust around his skeletal feet. Razark's magic had condemned him to an eternal nightmare as a skeleton, unable to release the sword. He seized a hooded robe and fled into the Moonstone Hills, and he said, To this day, he drifts constantly across the same lake on his raft, clutching the sword, unable to rest until someone takes it from him. Rizark's body was placed in a stone sarcophagus and entombed in the fissure in the southern hills. The crypt was sealed by a lawful sorcerer, who decreed that it must remain open for one hundred and ten years, otherwise the necromancer would rise with a host of undead to destroy all life. I can only assume, concludes Yaztromo with a deep sigh. He does love a sigh at the moment, Yaztromo. <sighs> that treasure hunters found the Necromancer's crypt and opened it unknowingly. Razark must be destroyed before it is too late. Oh, but it's going to be so difficult. We'll need to find Razark's sword and a number of talismans and amulets that will protect you from the Necromancer's magic. I trust you will volunteer for this mighty task. Already, we've got a classic Ian Livingstone shopping list. Go and find the sword. Go and find the necromancer. Oh yeah, but also you will need 12 different talismans and amulets in order to defeat him. So uh, nice to see Ian Livingstone playing true to form. Slowly you nod your head, although your brain is still spinning with Yaztromo's Tromo's tale of Rizark and poor Cull. Good continues Yostromo. Now, don't worry about the sword. I won't let you become a skeleton. Just bring it back here, and in the meantime, I'll be calling on a few people who can help us. There's no time to waste. You must find the lake in the Moonstone Hills. Rest well tonight and leave at first light. Well, what little of it there is. So, that is our intro, and I really enjoyed it. I think, uh, yeah, the kind of is a sort of dark reflection of Yaz Tromo both sort of living alone and following their magical inclinations. I think that's really good. I like the detail of finding the sword from this cursed skeleton warrior who once defeated Rizark that I really like. If I were writing it, this would almost certainly end with us turning into the skeleton warrior at the end because I always lean more towards tragedy than heroism as an outcome. So yeah, I have every hope that this will be a decent adventure. You are woken from a nightmare in which undead creatures attack you with swords by Yastromo tapping you on the shoulder. Time to get up. It's almost dawn, he says in a sleepy voice. Within 20 minutes, you are outside and mounted on your horse. Yastromo smiles ever optimistic in the face of danger, and hands you a small glass file. A healing potion, he explains, enough for five tots. Note this on your adventure sheet. The healing potion will restore four stamina points each time it is drunk. Make a note each time you drink a tot. So, don't have any provisions, which is a shame, but we do have a healing potion, which honestly makes more sense than cramming sausage rolls into your face to heal a sucking gut wound. So I'm not going to complain too much. Uh, Probably a sensible idea to reduce the total amount of healing available to a starting character by half. You know, having 40 stamina points in reserve was a bit generous in many ways, and it's, it's the thing that a lot of people mess with straight out the gate, and I think that makes sense. The old wizard then waves you as you gallop off, heading east towards the moonstone hills in search of the lost lake. By midday, the hills rise up threateningly from the horizon, flanking you from north to south. Do you wonder how you will ever find the lake? By nightfall, you find yourself at the foot of the hills where the Silver River flows out onto the windward plain towards Chalice. You decide to camp by the river and make a fire to keep you warm, also to ward off any hunters of the night. The night passes without incident, and in the morning you wake feeling hungry. After eating bread and cheese from your backpack, you climb onto your horse and decide which way to head. Do you want to wade across the river and ride east into the hills, or would you rather follow the river north up into the hills? I think I would rather follow the river north. Let's have a look at the map. There's no real guide from the map at the front of the book as to where in the hills it might lie. It does indicate that to the east, or to the southeast of the river, if I follow it far enough, there is a forest of spiders, which doesn't sound great. So yeah, I think definitely we'll head north up into the hills. You climb steadily up into the hills following the winding river. After an hour or so, the ground becomes very marshy, and your horse has to struggle to keep moving forward. It appears that this part of the river often breaks its banks and floods the valley. Do you want to keep heading north, or would you rather cross the river and ride east into the hills? It feels as though this is telling me, maybe, that this isn't such a healthy area to be, so I will change my mind and head east. Two hours later, you are deep in the hills. You gaze up at the sombre grey sky, scanning it for winged killers that might swoop down to attack. There are no flying creatures to be seen, but an unnerving silence sends a shiver down your spine. Suddenly, your horse whinnies and rears up onto its hind legs. Roll two dice. So we're looking to get the same or less than our skill. Uh, Presumably, if we get more than the skill, something bad happens, like falling off a horse. I've always believed horses had it in for us. This is just more evidence to back up that assertion. I roll a 10, just under my skill of 11. So, hopefully we're going to be okay. Keeping a firm grip on the reins, you are able to stay in the saddle. Suddenly, three evil-looking creatures materialise, as if by magic, to ambush you. The stone-coloured chameleonites bound forward on two legs with strange, jerky movements. I guess that's how they were able to ambush me. They blend into the background. Their bulbous eyes and long tongues protrude from their reptilian heads, and their bodies are covered with scales. But they are humanoid in shape, and each carries a stone club with which to attack you. It's a picture of the chameleonites. They've all got their eyes pointing in slightly different directions, which I think is a feature of chameleons, so that is a nice touch. I would say the artwork is towards the cartoony end while still being very much in that kind of classic 1980s fantasy RPG artwork style. I think it's really good. I really like it, actually. It's very dark. There's a lot of use of really heavy shading. um, A lot of chiaroscuro work as well. Yeah, no, I I, I really rather like it. Uh, The first Chameleonite has a skill of 7, a stamina of 7. The second a skill of 6 and a stamina of 6 the third a skill of seven, and a stamina of six. Fight them one at a time. Well, well, that's that's easier. If you are still on horseback, add two to your attack strength during each round of combat. There we go. First neat little combat wrinkle, and I like it very much as well. So time to fight some chameleonites. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Chameleonites. I initially thought, ha, this is going to be an absolute cakewalk. No chance of these fellas doing any damage to me whatsoever. And then, of course, the first uh, Chameleonite succeeded in landing a blow on me in the very first round of combat. That was the only damage I took, so my stamina was reduced to 20, but all three Chameleonites are dead. You look down at the lifeless bodies of the Chameleonites and recall a legend you were once told. It is said that the blood of these rare creatures gives a human being the power of perfect camouflage just once in his or her life. But it is also said that sometimes there are terrible side effects. Do you wish to dab some chameleonite blood on your body or spur your horse further east? This is a great little encounter. I will dab some chameleonite blood on my body. I like the idea of being able to be invisible even just once. Not for any particularly sinister reason, I just like the idea of not being bothered. You tentatively dab some blood onto yourself and wait to see if you feel any ill effects. Roll one die, so we've got something happens on a one, something happens on a two, something else happens on a three to six. I'm guessing one is the instant death, two is very bad and everything else is fine. I hope so. I roll a three, making that roll by the skin of my teeth. Ten minutes pass and nothing terrible happens to you. You realise that you are immune to the side effects of the chameleonite's blood. Add one luck point our my luck is already at maximum, so that doesn't happen. In high spirits you turn your horse east. Genuinely disgusting noise from the cat, who's busy washing himself on my lap. At the bottom of the next hill you see that the ground is littered with the large bones of unknown creatures. Some are piled high, while others are scattered over a wide area. Suddenly you notice a small black-cloaked and hooded figure scurry from behind one pile of bones to another. Go away! Go away! He shouts in a voice full of fear. Do you wish to approach him, or would you rather ride around the Valley of Bones? I think this is a dwarf. I mean, it wouldn't be an Ian Livingstone fighting fantasy book. It wouldn't be a fighting fantasy book at all if we didn't run into at least one dwarf, preferably an elderly one. So let us approach him. Tramo does not count as the old man for this adventure. I want to say that at the outset. He is a wizard first and foremost, an old man secondarily. So, um, yeah, listen out. And we'll see whether we actually encounter the traditional fighting fantasy old man at some point. So we're going to approach this small fellow. As you approach the pile of bones, you are assailed by a salvo of bones, frantically thrown by the little man. Do you want to attack him? I don't think so, or would you rather call out and tell him that you mean him no harm? I mean him no harm, I will call out. The little man stops throwing the bones and asks you why you are trespassing on his ground. You reply that you are on an important quest and that you must find the lost lake. I'm just a simple man known as the Bonekeeper, the little man says in a sad voice. I do not know of any lost lake. I sort through these bones and carve some of them into magic rings. I would very much like a new knife for my work, and I would gladly give you one of my rings in exchange. Do you possess a knife? I do not. Do you want to attack him after all, or do you want to bid him farewell and ride out of the Valley of Bones? I mean, I'm always such a goody two shoes in these things. I feel like maybe it's worth while to attack him and nick his ring. You jump down from your horse, sword in hand, and attack the nimble man, who is armed with two long thigh bones. Say so the bone keeper has a skill of five. The stamina of six. I'm going to roll some dice. I have killed the bone keeper, which means uh, the valley of bones curses those who would harm its keeper. I lose three luck points. Luck now down to seven. You find a leather pouch hanging around the bone keeper's neck. Its contents are three bone rings, each one highly polished. One has the symbol of a full moon carved into its surface. Another bears the emblem of a dagger, and the third has a skull etched into it. So, moon ring, dagger ring, or skull ring? Um, moon ring, I guess. I I like the moon. After placing the ring on your finger, you rub it, hold it aloft, and even try to command it. God, I must look like a right Charlie but you are unable to discover any magical powers in it. You shrug your shoulders and consider what to do next. You can try the dagger ring or the skull ring or just ride east. Let's try the dagger ring. After placing the ring on your finger, the hooded cloak of the bonekeeper rises up out of the ground and hovers in front of you. A dagger appears from nowhere, clutched by an invisible hand protruding from the cloak. The cloak moves swiftly and silently towards you, Releasing the dagger straight at you. The Spirit Avenger's arm is true. And you are struck by the dagger. So you got to roll one die. So the options are on a one, a two to four, or a five to six. So let's get not a one. Four. The Spirit Avenger's throw is almost deadly. The dagger sinks into your shoulder, only centimetres away from your heart. Lose four stamina points. Stamina now sixteen but just as quickly as the cloak rose, it drops back to the ground and stays motionless. So the only question now is do I want to try on the skull ring? No, I think I'm going to cut my losses and ride east out of the cursed valley of bones. Leaving the valley behind you, you urge your horse up the next hill until you reach a pile of dark granite boulders. The largest boulder appears to have some words chiseled into it, most of which are hidden by moss. Do you wish to dismount and examine the words, or would you rather ride on? Let's have a look at these words. I'm an inveterate reader. You scrape the moss away and read the words of a rhyme. To go beyond a granite door, press the numbers 184. It's a clue. How nice. So that's straightforward. At the bottom of the hill, you see a narrow stream running north to south across your path. When you arrive at the edge, your horse stops and puts its head down to drink. Do you want to let it drink, or would you rather force it to cross the stream so you can continue on your quest? I mean, I don't care for horses, but I'm not a monster. I'm going to let the horse have a drink. Your horse drinks long and hard at the cool stream. You decide to do likewise, as you believe the water to be pure in the hills. Add one stamina point. Stamina now at 17. Ah, oh, lovely. Lovely hill water. Definitely not full of cheap droppings. When you think your horse has rested enough, you mount and cross the stream. You reach the brow of the next hill and look eastwards into the distance. All you can see is the never-ending range of hills stretching out into the gloom of the dark sky. Suddenly you hear the sound of galloping hooves and shrill war cries piercing the silence. You turn to look behind you and see a group of goblins charging up the hill on horses riding bareback. One of them is carrying a banner with shrunken heads swinging from it. There are four goblins in the raiding party. You must quickly decide what to do. Do you wish to charge down the hills to attack them or gallop away from them? It's a picture of the goblins on their little ponies, little war horses. It's, again, cartoonish, but not in a way I find objectionable. Horses are really nice, actually. I love a goblin. I think I prefer goblins to orcs. Don't know why. I think it's because they are such underdogs. Like orcs have got the kind of whole warrior culture sort of thing and they're kinda of big and hulking and menacing and you know, they feel like they ought to be in a fight, whereas goblins are like little horrible little children. They feel like they've got no real business trying to do um trying to do a big fight. So I do like goblins. That said, I am still gonna charge down the hill to attack them. I quite like this sort of vague underlying mounted combat vibe that's coming on. Kind of amazed with another really had that before. You manage to manoeuvre your horse so that you can fight the goblins one at a time. There are four goblins. Uh, Skill five, stamina five. Skill five, stamina six. Skill six, stamina five. Skill six, stamina six. The poor, poor, poor goblins. I feel so bad about the fact that, once again, their ambition has wildly outstripped their ability. I think that's why I like Goblins, there's something sympathetic about that. Little scrubs trying their best to be evil and winding up just cannon fodder. Anyway, with a slightly heavy heart, I'm going to go and roll some dice. I have killed the goblins. Uh, One of the goblins, goblin number two, managed to land a blow on me, reducing my health to 15 but yeah, I have handily defeated all four goblins. A search through the canvas bags belonging to the goblins yields two gold pieces, some stale cheese and a cracked mirror in a silver frame. You pack away the gold and the mirror and examine the cheese. Do you want to eat the mysterious goblin cheese, or would you rather throw it away and ride east? I feel like nothing good will come of eating goblin cheese, but at the same time, I am incorrigibly curious. So, let's note down what we've definitely got. So, we're eating the cheese. The cheese is dry and hard, but still nourishing. Add two stamina points. After you've finished eating, you slap your horse on the neck and ride east. Hey! Probably best not to ask what kind of milk was used to make that cheese. You ride over the top of the hill and down the other side. At the bottom, you can see a small wood at the end of the valley to the north. Do you want to ride towards the wood, or do you rather ride up the next hill? I like a wood, I like a wood a lot, so we're going to ride towards the wood and hope it's not the forest of spiders. You trot between tall, gnarled trees and into thick undergrowth. It is dark and eerie in the wood, with what little light there is, virtually shut out by the crowded treetops. You pull your horse to a halt and you have a strong feeling that you are being watched. Keeping a constant watch all around you, you urge your horse to walk on. As you ride slowly through the wood, you see the leaves of a bush move. You cannot convince yourself that it was ruffled by the wind. You draw your sword and turn your horse towards the bush. A hideous creature suddenly leaps out and stares at you through shrunken eyes, as dark as the earth itself. The creature is humanoid in shape, but with a dark, crusty skin like bark, covered in moss and fungus and crawling with bloated insects. It has a lifeless expression on its crumpled face. Suddenly, the wood demon's arms uncurl and extend like long vines, trying to pull you from your horse. Roll two dice. If the total is the same or less than your skill, it's all gravy. If the total is greater than your skill, I assume you get yanked from your horse. Five. Imagine that means I stay on horseback. There is a picture of the wood demon it's pretty good pretty good Uh, it looks suitably repellent with the kind of gnarled suggestions of recognizable features but the artist has very sensibly kept them to just suggestions and yeah covered in all sorts of vegetation and insects and what have you yeah it's cracking really cracking You fend off the arms with your sword and then lunge forward to attack the demon of the woods. The wood demon has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 10. The old dice getting a serious workout this time out are hardly surprising because Ian Livingston loves a combat encounter. He really does love a combat encounter. So I'm going to roll some dice. Wood demon dispatched without difficulty. I didn't even once roll less than the wood demon for my combat score. Like every single dice roll I was rolling better than the demon. So that's kind of cool. I'm sure it'll come back around the other way at some critical moment. But for now I seem to be fighting like a champ. So I've won. If you wish to tie your horse up to the tree and trudge through the thick undergrowth to find the demon's lair, you can. Or would you rather ride out of the wood as quickly as possible? Would demons, to me, feel like solitary creatures rather than, you know, clubbable? I don't think they're going to have, like, a you know, a clubhouse in the trees or anything. So I'm going to try and find the lair. We always have to be exploring with an Ian Livingstone because you know there is this laundry list of stuff you need to get. So it lends itself to a very... Um, Exploratory playstyle, which is how I would play anyway, so I quite like being pushed in that direction. You spend some minutes cutting your way through the bushes and brambles, but fail to find a lair. Perhaps the demon has no resting place. You've just decided to give up and return to your horse when something catches your eye in a pile of leaves. You brush away the leaves with your sword and discover the skeletal remains of a human wearing chainmail armour, no doubt a victim of the wood demon. You see that the bony fingers of the right hand are clutching a silver rod, which is about half a metre in length. A fine helmet lies next to the skull and a perished leather backpack is close by. I'm going to have a look at that rod. Seemed important to the dead fellow. I think it might be important to me. The rod is hollow at one end and has a screw thread inside it. You deduce that there is another part to the rod which is either lost or destroyed. You notice that the number 37 is etched into the solid end of the rod, but do not understand its significance. I understand its significance. I understand its significance all too well. It's going to be a number that we will turn to when we've got both halves of the rod. You put the rod in your backpack before deciding what to do next. So one thing for Herbie Brennan, not generally an aficionado of 200 secret. Sections in a book, so do we want to try on the helmet? I think I mean, all of these feel like stuff that ought to be basically safe. The helmet fits tightly on your head and is quite uncomfortable. You decide to take it off, but find that it is impossible to remove it with one luck point. luck now, down to six. you have the misfortune to be wearing a helmet of ageing, and you immediately age thirty years. Your body feels tired and more feeble than before. Deduct five stamina points and two skill points. Oh, wow. Skill reduced to nine. Stamina reduced to 12. So I'm going to take a tot of healing potion to slightly mitigate the effect of the aging. And that returns me to sixteen stamina points. So this was a terrible, terrible idea. God, I forget how tired I feel now, and the thought of feeling 20% more tired in 30 years just doesn't bear thinking about. With this new problem to preoccupy you, you consider your options. If you've not already done so, you may examine the rod or open the backpack. Well, in for a penny, in for a backpack full of spiders, that's what I reckon. So we're going to have a look at the backpack. The backpack contains four gold pieces, taking a total up to six, which, as ever in a fantasy world, could be the price of a medium-sized house, or it could be the price of a bag of popcorn. It's not really clear which. Uh, there's also a candle and a rolled-up parchment scroll. A Candle's always useful. Okay, you place the gold in the candle in your backpack and look down at the tubular scroll, like old Phil's less successful first draft of tubular bells. You see that there is writing on it. If you wish to open the scroll and read the writing, you can. Well... Again, we are in for a penny, in for a pound. Let's see what's on the scroll. The scroll relates the tale of the fabled Gigantis beast and its miraculous horn. Oh, aye. Although there is no absolute proof that the creature exists, rumours about it have been circulating for centuries. It is said to have a lumpy green hide and looks like a cross between a pit fiend and a flesh golem, but with the addition of a single horn in the centre of its forehead. Sounds a lot like someone I was at school with. The Gargantis horn is said to possess many magical and mysterious powers, which it would retain even if severed from the Gargantis's head. Anyone in possession of the horn, upon wielding it, would release these powers. You have heard of the beast, but are amazed to read on the scroll that one such creature is purported to dwell in the howling tunnels of the western flatlands. Perhaps the unfortunate adventurer who owned the scroll was on his way to the flatlands when he met an untimely death in the woods. You put the scroll in your backpack and consider what to do next. So uh, all that we have left to do is to return to the horse. Much to your relief, the horse is still tied to the tree and appears to be contentedly munching the grass. You waste no more time, mount your horse and set off once again. Ever watchful for hidden attackers, you ride slowly through the wood. You soon come to the edge of a small clearing where the ground is covered with globe-like fungi which are deep purple in colour. Do you want to ride through the fungi, or would you rather ride around the edge of the clearing? Well, it's a classic wilderness trap, isn't it? The uh, globe fungi that explode into deadly spores. I'm going to assume that it's a trap and ride around the edge of the clearing. After riding around the clearing, you notice with relief that the last of the trees are beginning to thin, and soon you are out of the wood. Very kind of high level, this... Um, we're very much in the travel log end of adventure game books here. Yeah, we're covering a lot of ground. It makes a change from sort of, you know, dungeoneering, obviously, you know, you cover very little ground. It's sort of interesting the way that, you know, these books interact with time. Maybe that's something I'll talk about more at the end, but between sections, you know, and hours pass, whereas you don't get that at all in a uh, more constrained setting. I worked out that the first game book... I wrote, if you went by the absolute fastest route to the end, it was probably somewhere around 10 to 15 minutes would pass in in in-game time, which is kind of cool. The rest of the day passes without incident and without sight of the lost lake either. In the fading light, you choose a suitable place to camp down for the night, making sure that your horse is securely tethered to a nearby tree, presumably so it can't shiv me in the night. You settle down to sleep but are woken in the middle of the night by a howling cry. Your eyes open to see a full moon and in an instant you are standing sword in hand. You feel your heart beating fast as you strain your eyes and ears. Suddenly you hear the sound of twigs snapping and then a low growl. You see a shadow move and in the dim light recognise the thick brown hair, long fangs and bestial features of a werewolf. If you are wearing a moon ring and know how to use it, turn to the number stated in the spell. If you're unable to do this, you must fight the werewolf with your sword. Oh, curse me for a fool for killing that little man of unspecified age. I have the moon ring, but I don't know what to do with it. Nice callback, nice callback. So uh, the werewolf has a skill of eight and a stamina of nine. Uh, but I need to track whether I suffer any wounds at all, which I imagine means I will turn into a werewolf myself. So, with my heart in my mouth, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the werewolf, but it didn't just bit me once, it bit me many, many times. Uh, those two points of lost skill really, really taking it out of me. And uh, I've been reduced to stamina six, so I think any. Suggestion that I may have avoided lycanthropy is is minimal. The wretched humans who are afflicted by lycanthropy are forced to turn into savage werewolves when the full moon rises. Anyone bitten by a werewolf is likely to turn into one himself. Or herself. If you are wearing a crystal of sanity, you will be immune to the disease. I could deal with one of those in real life, quite honestly. Otherwise, if you have a candle, then something might happen. Oh, I do have a candle. I do have a candle. Oh, this is cool. You quickly light the candle, knowing that you have less than an hour to save yourself from a terrible fate. Frantically, you begin to search by the light of the candle for belladonna, the only plant known that will cure the disease. So, that's cool. I like the idea of using the uh, the candle to find belladonna. That's a really, really imaginative use for uh, a very ordinary item, and I really appreciate that. Let's see with my whopping skill of six whether I can find some belladonna. Oh, double one for one snake eyes. Luck now five. Belladonna is also poisonous, so I'm going to, while I'm searching, have a little tot or healing potion, taking my stamina back up to ten. Because it would be enormously embarrassing to die of Belladonna poisoning, having saved myself from lycanthropy. After half an hour of rummaging through the undergrowth, you find the deadly nightshade plant, and are hardly able to believe your good fortune. You quickly chew a sprig to extract the belladonna, and are immediately sick because of the poison in the plant. Lose two stamina points, I was right. However, to your relief, you are cured of the disease. Unable to sleep properly again, you spend a restless night thinking about the task ahead. As soon as it is light enough to see, you mount your horse and set off east once again. You climb the highest hill in order to get a better view, and can hardly believe your eyes. A lake, no more than two hours' ride away, lies in a valley to the southeast. With a new heart and determination, you spur your horse towards it. Despite the dark sky, you notice a shadow travel swiftly across your path. You look up and see a winged creature with an eagle-like head and body of a lion swooping down to attack you. The creature has a bridle around its head, which is held by the rider, a wild-looking girl wearing animal skins. The barbarian girl has a griffin as her steed, an aggressive but loyal creature. There's a picture of the barbarian girl. She looks like she's having an absolute whale of a time. Uh, Again, she's okay... But the griffin is great, uh staring straight at you with claws outstretched, wings swept back, and the kind of the eagle face filled with that particular predatory gaze that I associate with birds of prey. Yeah, it's it's cool, it's cool. What's less cool is that the griffin has a skill of ten and a stamina of ten, and I have a skill of nine and a stamina of eight at the moment, so um yeah, get ready for the death march, I guess, as I'm going to roll some dice. Yeah, I have effectively died. Um. Yep, that was very, very swift. I managed to hit the griffin twice, but I was then torn apart by claw and beak whilst this... Jolly young lady, presumably, had a good giggle about it. So, I am going to invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule and I'm going to treat it as if I won the combat. I'll lock myself back to 10 stamina and I'll use up a healing potion. Let's move onwards. Hopefully, she's got some good loot. In its death throes, the griffin soars up into the sky before plummeting to the ground like a stone some 200 meters away. You do not see the barbarian girl get up from the ground and assume that she is either injured or dead. Do you want to ride over to investigate or just ride towards the lake? Let's go and investigate. The girl lies in a contorted heap close to her griffin. There is no sign of life and you wonder why she attacked you? Perhaps the griffin was hungry and intended to eat horse flesh. The girl was armed with a sword and shield. If you do not have a sword, you may take the girl's and add two skill points. I do have a sword. Uh, I would love to add those two skill points, but I can't. The shield is circular and has strange writing etched around the circumference. Do you want to take the shield? Of course. If there's any possibility of a magic shield, I am on it. You are in possession of a magical shield which dates back some 200 years. It has the unusual ability to defend its carrier from magically cast lightning bolts. It does, of course, defend against sharpened blades too. Named the Defender by its maker, it is one of the finest swords in all Alansia. So you can add one skill point, much needed, making my skill back to ten. I can add one luck point, taking my luck back to six. Everything's going to be fine. You sling it over your shoulder and ride off towards the lake. While riding down one of the last hills before the lake, you notice a rusted iron box lying at the base of the tree. Do you wish to open the box, or would you rather press on towards the lake? I think i will leave it, because I do want to get to the lake uh, without dying. And obviously I've only got... I can't really invoke the Sausagey Finger bookmark rule again, so I'm going to press on towards the lake, because I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens there. You ride nervously over the brow of the hill that leads down towards the lake. There is a deathly silence in the valley, and hardly a ripple breaks the surface of the dark mist-covered water which stretches into the distance. You quickly scan the lake and see no movement on it. You wait patiently for almost an hour, and then you catch sight of an object drifting slowly towards the western shore. You strain your eyes and see that it is undoubtedly a raft and that a robed figure is sitting on it. You spur your horse along the shore to the point where the raft is heading. As the raft drifts closer to the shore, you urge your horse into the cold lake and set eyes on the cursed skeleton of Kull. Still gripping Rosark's sword as it has done for a hundred years, the skeleton of Kull sits motionless on the raft as you approach. You overcome your anxiety and reach out to take the sword from Kull. You hear a whispered sigh of joy, watch the skeleton crumble into dust, and disappear between the logs of the raft into the lake. After placing the dreaded sword in your belt, you ride off west towards Yastremos tower, unable to rid yourself of the haunting thought of the terrible fate that may await you as Keeper of Razark's sword. So there's a picture of the skeleton in the lake, and you can... See it proffering the sword to you. It's really good. You can see your own hand reaching out, but with a sort of sense of tentativeness to take the sword. It's a great evocative picture. does exactly what you want. So, yeah, very nice indeed. And a very nice evocative set piece without any combat or anything. Sometimes all you want to do is just write the thing without messing around with it too much. And that's a great example of that. Consumed by dark thoughts, you do not notice that you are being followed, and only the sound of galloping hooves brings you back to reality. You look behind you and see an armoured centaur closing on you. Your horse is too tired to out-gallop the centaur, so you turn to face your adversary who is armed with a long spear. So the centaur has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 10. These are some meaty combat encounters. Uh, That's the same skill and stamina I've currently got. I will have a little tot or healing potion on my way in I think. That seems reasonable. Taking my stamina to 14, meaning that all things being equal I should beat this centaur. So, for the umpteenth time this recording, I'm going to roll some dice. (laughs) I have defeated the centaur. He reduced me to eight stamina points. So I'm going to gob down my last tot of healing potion to take my stamina back up to 12. Around the neck of the centaur hangs a bronze talisman in the shape of a horned demon. Do you want to wear the talisman yourself or would you rather ride off without the talisman? Let's stick that talisman on. We were told we need talismans. Always oh, very generous with the loot. You do not feel any different with the talisman around your neck, nor do you discover any magical powers. You decide not to waste any more time, and you set off for Yastromo's tower. For the next hour, your return journey through the hills remains uneventful, until you suddenly hear a girl's cry for help, coming from the direction of a wooded knoll not far to the south. Do you want to ride to the knoll, or would you rather keep riding west? I I will investigate. When you get closer to the trees, you see who is calling for help. A young woman is hanging upside down, her right leg caught in a root noose tied to the high branch of a tree. Her hands are tied behind her back, making it impossible for her to free herself. She pleads with you to cut her down and says that she can heal your wounds as a reward. There is a picture of this young lady. She does look in the aspect of the tarot card The Hanged Man, uh, which is one of the more inauspicious tarot cards she's got the leg crossed. The artist's use of like quite thick black lines makes it kind of hard to read her expression, but I'm going to say she does have a hint of evilness to her. So it might be a mistake. Well, it's a mistake I'm going to lean into. I am going to cut her down because again, I'm kind of curious to know who or what this young woman is. The woman is soon free and thanks you for rescuing her. But you keep your sword in your hand as many an adventurer of Alansia has died in the past due to trickery. The woman notices your suspicion and says, My name is Jella. I am a half-elf. I am an apprentice to the uh, wizard. Kovax of Zengis. He's a specialist in long life and has sent me into the hills in search of rare herbs. Unfortunately, I was ambushed by goblins. They took nearly everything I had, but ignored my most valuable possession. A tin of healing powder. You watch as Jella opens a small tin and offers you a pinch of brown powder. Do you want to swallow some of the powder, or would you rather bid her farewell? I will, I'll take her word for it. I could do with the healing, I'll be honest. Jella is true to her word, and some of your wounds immediately start to heal before your eyes. Roll one die and add two to the number rolled. That is a four, meaning I can add six stamina points, which takes me back up to a much more Robust stamina of 20. After telling Jella briefly about your quest, she warns you that there are a lot of boulder beasts in the hills and that you should be careful. You thank her and bid her farewell before riding off west. Boulder beasts do not sound great. Do you think they're beasts that are shaped like boulders? They're, They're beasts that are made out of boulders? Or do you think they're beasts that eat boulders? The day passes quickly and soon you find yourself riding down a narrow valley between two rows of hills. This is a welcome change from continually riding up and down hills. However, in the wild lands of Alansia, danger is never far away. Standing ahead of you in the middle of the valley is a horrible, ugly brute some six metres tall, dressed in grubby animal skins. A pile of rocks lies next to the hill giant who calls out and threatens to hurl them at you unless you give him five gold pieces to allow you through his valley. I think there's one of the deeds of um, Theseus is killing a bandit, who I think was unusually tall, who, who crushed people with a rock. Do I want to give him the gold? Do I want to attack him with my sword or just ride up the hill to bypass the giant? I imagine this giant can hoy a rock some considerable distance. I mean, I've got six gold. I could just give him the gold. I might do that. You ride slowly up to the giant, ready to draw your sword in case he should suddenly pick up a rock to throw at you. When you feel you are close enough, you drop the gold pieces on the ground and urge your horse into a gallop. The giant ignores you as you gallop past him, being much more concerned with picking up the gold. When you consider yourself well out of the range of the giant's missiles, you slow your horse down to a walk. Cowardly, but effective. At the end of the valley, you are forced to ride up into the hills again but the rest of the day passes without further incident. As the night falls, you wonder whether to make camp. In the distance, you can see the glow of what looks like a fire, but it is too dark to make out who might be sitting by it. Do you want to ride over to the fire, or would you rather camp down for the night between some nearby boulders? I bet those are boulder beasts, so I am going to ride over to the fire. As you approach the fire, you hear a man's voice say, Halt, or I shall loose an arrow at you is dark now so that you cannot see anybody. You decide to err on the side of caution and pull your horse to a halt. Then the man calls out again. Wise decision, stranger. Now tell me, are you a lawful character or a servant of chaos? Uh, I guess I'm lawful. I mean, I did do that murder that one time earlier. Did do that one murder. Um, which means technically I'm chaotic. But I'm going to lie and say I'm lawful because that's the chaotic thing to do. The Unseen Man speaks to you in a friendly voice, saying, If you are lawful as you say you are, then dismount from your horse. Stick your sword in the ground and come and join me for some roasted duck. Do you want to trust him, or would you rather kick your horse into a gallop? I do want to eat a duck. So I'm going to trust him on this occasion. Although you are reluctant to part with your sword, you are convinced that the unseen man is telling the truth. As soon as your sword is out of your hand, a man steps out from behind a tree into the light of the fire. He is tall, dressed in a dark green tunic. He pulls back his hood and extends his hand in welcome. You sit down by the fire and feast yourself on the delicious duck and wild mushrooms. Add two stamina points. Cool. Stamina back to maximum. Everything's coming up, Turbot Hacker. I should say there's a picture of the man. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he, he looks a bit like Lone Wolf, but with a uh, very large moustache. So yeah, Lone Wolf with a large moustache standing in front of a tempting looking duck roasting over an open fire. And mushrooms as well. Oh, Mushrooms look even nicer. The man tells you that his name is Sim, and that he is a hunter and tracker. "'There is nothing I cannot follow and nothing I cannot shoot,' he says in a jovial voice, while wiping his mouth with the back of his hands. "'But what brings you to these barren hills?' You decide to tell Sim about Razark and the threat to Alansia. When you have finished, Sim looks at you seriously and says, "'Then I nearly put an arrow through you. I must make it up to you somehow. "'I therefore offer you my services. I'm sure you will find my skills of some use. What do you say?' You decide that Sim could be a valuable ally, and you accept his offer. Cool, I love it when they do an NPC. After a good night's sleep, you both mount your horses and ride off west. Sim takes the lead, choosing the easiest and most direct way out of the hills. By late afternoon, you are almost at the edge of the hills, when Sim notices two figures crouching behind large rocks up ahead. Wild hillmen! he calls out to you. They think I haven't seen them, and they will jump out at us when we ride by. Do you want to practice your sword play or shall we ride around them? Do you want to fight the hillmen? Would you rather ride around them? I think we will ride around them. Best not go looking for trouble. You turn your horses north and wave to the hillmen who shake their fists at you in frustration. When out of range of their bows you turn west once again. At long last you reach the final ridge and gaze out across the windward plain. You ride on until nightfall and spend a peaceful night in an abandoned hut on the northern bank of Silver River. Not long after dawn, you are back in the saddle and riding towards Yastromo's tower. You reach your destination by noon and call out excitedly to your old friend as the tower comes into view. Nobody returns your call and the smile drops from your face. You tie your horse to a bush and walk along the path to Yastromo's door. You notice that his herb garden is brown and withered and ugly bushes with long black thorns have quickly grown up, smothering the plants and herbs. Such a remarkable change in a few days puzzles you. You ring the brass bell, but there is no reply. Suddenly, a large crow flies down from a window in the tower and drops a piece of paper to the ground. Hey, messenger crow again. Pretty sure we had him in Forest of Doom, or her. You pick up the paper and read a message from Yaz Dear friend, Sorry I am not here to meet you, and I'm still busy with preparations. Please ride east where you will find me at a wooden hut at the edge of Darkwood Forest, Yastromo. You tell Sim about the note, and then you both hurry back to your horses. As you ride east, you wonder if Yastromo is in danger. After riding along the edge of the forest for less than a mile, a voice calls out from the trees, saying, If you're looking for Yastromo, I know where to find him. If you wish to stop to investigate, you can. Would you rather ride on? Best stop to investigate. Something bad has happened, I'm sure. Yeah, we did We did stop at an abandoned hut, didn't we? You peer into the forest but see nobody. Suddenly the voice speaks again, saying, No, you cannot see me because I am invisible. I am Suma, a spirit from another magical plane. The forces of chaos against you are great, and I felt it my duty to help you. Yastromo has been kidnapped by the servants of Razark and taken from the hut to the forest to be sacrificed. Ride north from here into the forest and you will save him. A trap awaits you at the hut. That is all I can say to help you. I am allowed to help you but once more and should you need me call out Sumer 11. That's my number. Goodbye and good luck. You call out to the Sumer for more information but get no reply. So do you wish to ride north into the forest or ride on to the wooden hut? Well, I'm going to ride north into the forest, but I also think that we are going to pause the recording there. I'm beginning to feel fatigued. So I will continue to play this, of course, off mic. I think we've had a really interesting tour through Crypt of the Sorcerer and yeah, I'm very anxious to find out what happens with trying to save Tromo's life. So, I will finish playing it, I will cogitate and consider my views of this adventure game book, and then I will be back for you in a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty, bye. It's a little over 24 hours later, and I have finished Crypt of the Sorcerer. Did I enjoy it? Yes and no. More yes than no, but there are some frustrating elements of the design that do their best to try and overwhelm the good stuff. For those that are keeping track at home, I can confirm that this book has both dwarves, plural, and an old man, so that's nice for the fighting fantasy purists. Let's get the big negative out of the way first. This is hard. It's harder than those toffees you used to lose baby teeth on as a kid. We'll talk about the laundry list of necessary items and clues in a moment, and we'll just focus for a bit on how cheerfully this book will murder you if you've got less than maximum skill and luck, and how cheerfully it will murder you if you have got maximum skill and luck, to be honest. there are a whole host of places where a failed roll will spell either instant death or the kind of crippling that will make the next roll spell instant death. Most of the actual fights aren't that hard, provided you can hang on to your skill. And those relatively durable fights, they might lull you into a false sense of security. But any hope you had will be completely dashed by the time you get to the final boss, who... Assuming you can actually get past his magical tricks in order to throw hands, he has got a skill of 12 and a stamina of 20, and if he hits you twice in a row, it's instant death. So even though most of the fights are manageable, you still need to be maxed out for the finale, and even then, there's a less than 50-50 chance of winning, even with a skill of 12. By the way, if you get out of that fight with six or less stamina and no way of getting above six, you're going to die immediately after defeating him as well. So that's a nice little kicker. Between the frequent skill and luck rolls and the final boss, I don't think there's any realistic chance of beating this book fairly. I know I gave up fairly quickly on that as a project. If you ignore the rule that says you can't have a higher skill than you start with, you might just stand a chance, but playing as written, I think you are doomed. The worst example is a mandatory encounter, which at least does come early doors, with some poison-spitting insects, which is resolved with a random d6 roll, where anything other than a 1 or a 2 will cripple you to the point where continuing is basically futile. That means that playing fairly, only a third of your attempts will ever be truly viable. Uh, That's almost J.H. Brennan-like in its wrong-headed brutality. That is my biggest gripe out of the way. The numbers are stacked against you on every level. Poor design, no hiding from it. However, that doesn't mean that I'm opposed to all the hardcore decisions. There's some I quite like, even though they do make things very challenging. Don't put on any headgear, for example. That's just some free advice from me to you. If you're adventuring in Alansia, if you see something like a hat or similar, give it a miss. Both helms, I found, were magically crippling, and the sole mask, I found, was an instant kill. I can only assume that Ian Livingstone thinks that all headwear makes people look stupid, or maybe he was savaged by a milliner at a young age and never got over it. It's completely absurd and very harsh, but it did make me laugh when I spotted the pattern, so I cannot complain. On one playthrough, I ended up wearing a cursed hat on top of my cursed hat, which is a delightfully stupid image. Now, as alluded to earlier, this being an Ian Livingstone book, there's the traditional long list of items and clues you'll need to beat the game. There are a lot of items in this book. To put it into context, you need a bronze key to open the secret door to the penultimate chamber. You will then need to turn to five hidden sections in a row to penetrate to the final confrontation with Razark. Once you're there, there's a mere three magical items and one more hidden paragraph standing between you and the near impossible final confrontation. That's ten preconditions you need to satisfy to beat the final boss to say nothing of the preconditions you need to satisfy to beat the Gigantis, the mid boss of the adventure as well now that might seem brutal but i have to say when i completed my final run i had everything i needed for that and that was the first time i got to that that point so it's clearly doable to satisfy all of those preconditions. And it did feel awesome to be able to sail through all of those challenges. It felt like a payoff for all of the hard work I'd put in. I mean, it's still quite unfair, especially with some of the decisions needing to be made very early on for a very late payoff. But there's a great range of different challenges you need to meet. Some of it's Items, some of its knowledge, and two of them involve listening to a dwarf ramble on tediously about trivia, which is just a fantastic, fantastic design choice. And this ties in with the presence of NPCs in the second half of the adventure. They don't always feel super present, but it does give you the flavour of leading a party like you're in a game of Dungeons and Dragons. Now, Sim the Ranger is as dull as porridge-flavoured rice pudding, but Bori the Dwarf, who you pick up in Stonebridge, he's a lot more fun. He's short, he's fat, and he's a proper irritating nerd about all kinds of things. And I do love that you have to actually listen to him prattle about the ruinous price of equipment in Port Blacksand in order to get through the final challenge of the book. Despite that not making a whole lot of intuitive sense. In general, I think the NPCs could have been given a bit more space to shine. It is possible to kind of forget they're there for chunks, but I do appreciate that their presence doesn't cost you the player any agency. They're not getting in the way of your adventure by trying to have their own adventure, which I think is the right side of that divide to fall on. So they they add real colour, and I think he's erred on the right side by not having them be central focus. They are just supporting cast. Now, this is another Ian Livingstone book with a broadly linear structure. There's not a huge scope for wandering off the beaten track, although there is some. It's very much a travelogue, and it can wind up feeling quite long. Not as long as Caverns of the Snow Witch, which really does just feel like one very, very long corridor. But that tendency in how he constructs his narrative is still there. The fact that the quest is broken up into two rough halves and the NPCs being present for the second half, it definitely helps give that second major chunk its own identity and that is much appreciated. Now the travels early on are all by horse and there's something very nice about how far that allows you to range. It's very open, there's lots of nice nods to the increasingly specific geography of Alansia. We get to see Stonebridge and Mirkwood from the Forest of Dune, complete with Yaz Tromo doing his best knock-off Merlin impression. But it's also nice to see the more recent Creature of Havoc referenced with the Forest of Spiders and Trolltooth Pass. Uh, the book Titan, exploring the fighting fantasy world in more detail than ever before, had not long come out. And this book benefits from the increasing sense of being part of a known world. And that's reflected in the monsters as well. Although there's some typically imaginative Ian Livingstone creatures, he's always been a dab hand at a surreal but oddly convincing fantasy ecology. We get plenty of goblins, hobgoblins, trolls and other fantasy staples. The kind of things that characterise the very earliest books in the series. And I really like the mixture of the novel with the familiar. I think the uh, chameleonites are fabulous as a great weird creature, but at the same time, there's something very pleasant about seeing another hill troll. I also like the way Livingstone has made mounted combat a strong feature of the early book. He's not a writer who tends to experiment too much with the rule system but by having the horse be part of several fights, he does a good job of building your mode of travel into the narrative on a mechanical level as well. And it did make me think about trying to write a game book where you're a knight and mounted combat is the focus, complete with rules for jousting. So anytime a game book generates those sort of ideas in my head, I always think it's doing something really, really cool. And The bestiary, combined with the structure of wilderness encounters punctuated by smaller dungeons, alongside the presence of other adventurers in your party, makes this, for me, feel like one of the strongest evocations of fantasy role-playing that we've seen so far. It's not the same as playing in a fantasy role-playing game. Of course it isn't, because that is an intensely collaborative experience, and You're only collaborating with the author and only in the way that the author allows you that collaboration. But it does remind me of doing fantasy games, particularly the games I used to play and run when I was a young teenager. And that's a nice thing to be reminded of. It's a pity that the game is so linear. It would have been nice to feel maybe a stronger sense of possibility, but there's only so much you can do in one book. The dungeon portions feel, I think, a little bit underbaked, but that's not a huge issue for me because I just prefer adventuring in the great outdoors in general. I don't know why dungeons are not my favourite setting for an adventure game book. I like them, don't get me wrong. I think it's probably just that when I was running games as a youngster, I used to run games that were very, very improvisational, and dungeons are really, really hard to improvise. So I didn't really do that. There's a few other niggles. There's an item that makes getting the Gigantus horn you need to proceed onto the second part of the book much easier, and it's insanely difficult to get. You can get the horn without it, but the fight is very hard, and I ended up having to check a walkthrough to find out exactly what I needed to do, and it was extremely counterintuitive. You need to kill the Bone Keeper which the book is very strongly hinting is a bad, bad idea, and then take one specific ring in order to trigger some skeletons in a graveyard, which also feels like a mistake, by the way, which you can then go on from there to get the second part of a magic rod, which you can use to paralyse Gigantis. And no part of it feels intuitive. It's not more than a niggle because I think it's forgivable. It's not an essential item. And I do like those little Easter eggs being put in for the completists but when a game is this brutally hard it just feels like one more kick in the teeth to an extent. Um, It's not a deal breaker and I, I did enjoy just how unintuitive it was. It was so clearly deliberately being obtuse that that was quite fun. So this is the quintessential Curate's Egg. Parts of it are very good indeed. It doesn't feel as polished as some of his books. But there was still definitely more in it that I liked than I didn't like. Extreme difficulty is almost part of the brand at this point. And I know from a podcasting perspective, I'd rather play a difficult book out loud because it's more exciting and the stakes feel higher. And there's a real sense of, am I going to actually make it far enough to have an episode that's longer than 25 minutes? which I think adds something to the the proceedings. There's probably, in absolute terms, a sweet spot where it takes you about three attempts to hit the ending of a book, but that's never going to be easy to write for... I think balancing game books is genuinely very hard, unless you have access to a team of playtesters and co-designers to tweak every aspect like it's a modern video game. And let's be honest, for almost anyone trying to write and publish adventure game books today that's definitely not going to happen. I will say also that this book, although I didn't map it properly, is pretty easy to map from what what I've looked at. And that's something that I think is nice as well. When a book is really hard and also a maze, it can be unfathomably difficult to try and work out where all the moving parts are. Creature of Havoc had that. Creature of Havoc's dungeon was just so, so hard and so difficult to map. Again, I think if you're going to be really, really hard, this is probably the best way to do it. And in the case of Crypt of the Sorcerer, I think there's enough really good set pieces, memorable elements and things that I want to take and try and apply in a different context for me to wholeheartedly recommend it. Just be prepared to get frustrated. Be prepared to look at a walkthrough at some point. And for heaven's sake, don't try and do it absolutely fairly or you will go insane. Right, that's all from me for this episode. I'll be back sometime in August, health permitting, or to be honest, health be damned. If you want to support me without giving some feckless layabout your hard earned cash, then you can always leave a review or rating on your podcast provider of choice or mention. This podcast to someone you think might enjoy it. You can get in touch by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun at gmail.com and I do always enjoy receiving mail. Thanks for listening, take care, I'll see you soon.